Hello, friends. This week, we have something very special for you that we've never done before. We have two shows for you because we have two very important guests to help us talk about the issue of school choice. Today, we're going to have a show with Beth Lewis, who leads Save Our Schools Arizona. And this is a really good discussion that we were able to have about how school choice is playing out in Arizona from from her perspective. And tomorrow, we're going to have Josh Cowan, who is a university professor that studies school choice and actually has been pretty vocal online about his opinions and his thoughts and his research on school choice. And you can get that interview tomorrow, and I can assure you, you're going to love both of them. So thank you so much for listening. And we're going to start off with the first interview with Beth Lewis. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. Today, we've got a very special show because we have done shows before about school choice, but we need to get a range of opinion on how well school choice is being implemented, what it means for families. And one of the states that gets held up oftentimes as being like the exemplar of what you would want a a state to be for school choice is Arizona. And I've written glowing things about Arizona because of the, the school choice program. I live in Minnesota, though. <laughs> so in some ways, I'm writing about another person's state, and I'm not a family in Arizona living underneath the Arizona regime of school choice. So today we have a guest who's going to help us understand the issue. The guest is Beth Lewis, who is a mom, a public education advocate, and a K-12 policy expert who fights for a fully an equitably funded school for every Arizona child. She's also the executive director of Save Our Schools Arizona, which is an advocacy group in Arizona that does track what is going on with the vouchers situation and what's going on with families. So this is the perfect guest to have to help us get some clarity on whether or not I should be writing glowing things about Arizona. Beth, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, Chris. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having this conversation. I'm I'm excited. Well, does it surprise you at all what I say about like, you know, if you don't live in Arizona, but you are in education policy and you do like subscribe to school choice, that you think that Arizona is like the place to be? Does that surprise you? Yes and no. I mean, I, obviously, you know, we, we read these things around the nation that are holding Arizona up as this like beacon on the hill when it comes to school choice. You know, and those of us here on the ground seeing the impacts on our budget and on our public schools are, you know, feel like we're screaming into the ocean. But at the same time, you know, we've seen other states start to implement voucher policies in the wake of our universal voucher program. And they're not doing the same thing as Arizona because they are looking at us and secretly, I think in their circles are saying, yeah, we want to do this, but we do not want to do it like Arizona. This is bad. So what's different about Arizona? Like when you say do it, and if this comes to your state, if you're a listener and this is coming to your state, Beth is saying that, you know, uh, you probably want to watch out for some things. What's the it in Arizona that you think we shouldn't be doing? So there, there are a lot of pieces. So here in Arizona, you know, it's the wild, wild west, the voucher that they've passed is truly for anybody. There's no means testing. So multimillionaires can take the money just as much as, you know, low income folks, but they're the folks that are already attending private school at a much higher clip. And so most of the money is being sucked into our well-off communities already. There's also no accreditation. So Florida just passed universal vouchers, but they require that private schools 
go through an accreditation process. So we're they're ensuring at least some level of quality. A lot of states, most other states that have voucher programs require academic accountability. So they're saying, okay, you can take the, these state dollars, that's fine, but you've got to take the state test or a nationally norm reference test so that parents know that, you know, they're choosing something that's on par with the local public school. Arizona had that in the bill, ripped it out at the 11th hour, amended it out and doesn't exist. A lot of other states have non-discrimination clauses. Arizona doesn't. So a lot of these schools can discriminate on the basis of things like religion, things like LGBTQ status, and that's teachers, parents, students alike can be discriminated against. The other thing, you know, in Iowa, they're phasing it in, taking a slower approach using means testing. In Ohio, they've got means testing that's scaled. So the well-off folks only get 10% of that voucher money, not the full thing. So there are a lot of other folks around the country that are looking at Arizona and saying, well, we don't want it to grow to be an eighth of the entire K-12 budget. We want this to be, at the very least, whether I agree with it or not, we want it to be catered to the kids who need it most. In Arizona, we don't have that. And it's, you know, for that reason, it's being used in a way that is overwhelmingly benefiting high-income families and I know a lot of folks that really didn't want that to happen. I know a lot of folks who didn't believe that was going to happen. And I think some people are starting to look at it and realize that maybe they should go back to the drawing board and come up with a better solution. You know, it's often sold as like the the ticket for marginalized families to get out of really bad schools and bad situations. And that honestly, you know, has been the one reason why I have always supported school choice is because... I concentrate and focus most of my time thinking about marginalized families, marginalized communities, historically marginalized communities, communities where the United States has unfinished business, where they haven't like, you know, fully enfranchised groups of people, right? And the opportunity for those people to start their own schools or create new educational opportunities when they've been left behind, you know, in public education, because a lot of you know, cities especially have the schools where everybody else left. And, you know, these are the schools that are kind of like the left behind schools that people with better mortgages got out of. But I would have never thought, like in any of these programs, that we would be sitting here today talking about wealthy families being not just some of who is signing up, but the majority in some states. Like the majority of the people sign up. And I don't know if that is that way in Arizona, but that kind of is shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, unless you put guardrails up to prevent it, you know, the people who have access to, you know, the internet, the people who have access to the newspapers, the people in subscriptions, the people who have access to other wealthy friends who have access to all of those things, right? It, be, it builds this echo chamber and that's what we're seeing. That's why, you know, we're, we're sending... $40 million a year to Scottsdale and Paradise Valley and just a tiny trickle to South Phoenix. And, you know, for your national listeners, like Scottsdale and Paradise Valley is where all the money is. And that's where all the people were already attending private school. And that's where the, the greatest concentration of existing private schools already, you know, are set up. And we're not seeing, you know, wonderful schools being built in low-income communities. That was the promise and, you know, we called foul that when that was trying to be sold that way, we said, you know, what we anticipate is subpar schools being set up in strip malls. We anticipate, you know, predatory practices, predatory marketing to families that 
you know, don't necessarily have access to all of this information and hear, okay, so we've got this scholarship and it sounds great. A lot of families here, especially Spanish speaking families are getting this marketing and they don't even realize that they have to leave their local public school. They're being handed a flyer that says, hey, you get $7,000 in free scholarship money to just use however you wish. And when they go to fill it out, they get like led through this process and finally realize, oh, I have to leave my local public school. And, you know, to me, that is, it's sad. It's predatory. It's Betsy DeVos coming in, American Federation for Children, plucking out these stories of a couple kids who genuinely have had good experiences and trying to sell that as the norm when the reality is most of these kids, even if two kids get a better situation, we're abandoning tens of thousands of kids in the same situation who are really relying on their local public school. And I'm not anti-choice. Like we have robust choice in Arizona. I think one of the things that might be different, you know, definitely from East Coast states, at least, is that we have open enrollment. So in theory, you know, you, you're not trapped by zip code to a school. And we have transportation offerings where folks can get on a bus or, or a public system and go to the school that they choose. We have charter schools. 20% of our schools are charter schools. And a lot of those are quality and they are in the community. Some of them are really corporate and they're not quality, but you know, we can get into the weeds on that. The point is we have robust choice and we didn't need a voucher to get there. And now these vouchers are robbing all the choices that people, especially low-income people were making. What's the uh, financial impact? So we're looking at almost a billion dollars next year. And for folks that aren't in Arizona, that's about a ninth of our entire K-12 budget. Jeez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, and just for explanation point, you know, to explain this, this is a billion dollars that will be transferred from, that will not be in the public school system, that will be in a private school system for kids, many of whom, maybe as high as 80%, but some high percentage of whom never were in the public schools to begin with. Exactly. So this is like education welfare. So we finally, we finally have found the welfare program that Republicans like. It's for families to, um, to go to private school, a subsidy, a straight up subsidy for the rich to go to private school, but not just, so tell me if I'm wrong. It's not just to go to private school because there's all kinds of other wacky stuff that I have read that people can do with the money. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's that's what we're really looking at. I mean, there are some quality private schools. There are some situations, you know, like a great brophy. Again, they're not building them in the poor communities. So I don't know how this is going to go. But this homeschooling business is something that has not been replicated across the country. And I think if you were here on the ground in Arizona, you would see why we've got you know, all of these people who are bragging about their $7,000, like they don't even know how to use all of that money. And so they're crowdsourcing ideas on Facebook saying, hey, what are some fun ways to use this up? There's no way I'm going to need it to finish this school year. And the ADE, our Department of Education, is letting them use it on things like water skiing classes in Missouri and water parks and bouncy houses and espresso machines and at Ikea furniture. And meanwhile, you know, the rest of us parents who just like struggled through the summer trying to put our kids in like the local, you know, local city basketball camp because can't afford anything else. You're like, what is going on? So because I choose my local public school and my, I keep my taxpayer dollars there, I don't have access to summer camps, water parks, lessons in Missouri. It's so unfair, but it also shows like 
it's highway robbery because we know those dollars are desperately needed in our Title I schools and they're not going there. I think it's so interesting that if you went back in time and said, if, if Democrats went to Republicans and pitched the idea, we need to give parents a subsidy, a stipend so that they can go to SeaWorld and so that they can go on skiing trips and we should have the government pay for it. If we go back in time and just pitch that to the GOP, they'd be like, hell no. <laughs> Uh, we don't even want the kids to have school lunch. We don't even want them to eat. And as a matter of fact, when we give them food stamps, we don't even want them to have certain kinds of food. And of course, we're not going to pay for SeaWorld tickets or whatnot. But here we are in this bizarre world in 2023. The the one a welfare program that the GOP seems to love is giving subsidies to rich families to take piano lessons and go skiing. It's so wild. And it's all built on this system of, I'm, I'm just going to say it, it's entitlement, right? It's these like suburban families who have been told by these special interests that they're your taxpayer dollars and it's for your kids. So you should get to do whatever you want with it. And it drives me nuts because I'm, I've been teaching in some of the poorer schools in Maricopa County for the last 12 years. And so I see the needs. And so sometimes I think they don't understand why, you know, education advocates are so, so deeply angry about this program. And it's because we've been in it. And we, we know the needs and we know we can't keep a hold of teachers because we have the lowest teacher salary in the country. I I mean, I'm on the PTO for my school this year. I'm on a, a leave for teaching this year and trying to fund like their mini grants. It's sad. Teachers are just asking for basics like Kleenex and printer paper and markers. And if they don't get it, they're digging into their own salary, which is nothing. You know, they get like a bucket of chicken wings every two weeks. And so mm. like to hear this entitlement and to have these parents, you know, screaming on the Internet that it's their taxpayer dollars. And you ask them sometimes like, so should you just be able to take your rebate if you didn't use the fire department for the last 10 years? Should you just get to be able to hire your own private fire person and police department? Yeah, exit the system. And they never have an answer for that. But to me, it's the same thing or like why if I don't use the public library should I just get that money to buy books on Amazon like, no just you use it or you don't it's a public good and so I think sometimes we're looking at almost a bigger picture of the start of walking away from our society like we're walking away from democracy we're walking away from the public good in Arizona and this is a huge part of it because it's building that that mentality that myth of Mind my mind, walk away, get off the grid, don't trust the government. The reality is, you know, our here, our local public schools do a really great job. And I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying the system is perfect. Nobody's saying that. They would do a lot better if they were fully funded. Well, first of all, let me back up and just say it is important to keep calling this educational welfare because what we have seen with the GOP, what they do with entitlements and welfare programs is their inclination every year is just to cut it. Cut, 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 cut. So what makes us think that once we get like a critical mass of people out of the regular system and get like everybody's on a voucher, let's, let's just say that their wildest dream comes true. Everybody gets a voucher and everybody's making choices. And then the public schools lose all their students, except for in the suburbs where people, you know, pay extra for their mortgages to, to have their kids in those schools. But, you know, you get a large scale disinvestment and now everybody's on a voucher. Now it's time to start cutting those. Like it's starting, you know. Like the lure is to get you into that side, to have you abandon the public schools and abandon this side of the fence. But then when you get over there, don't think that they're not going to like cut that like they do every other entitlement program once they get you over there, like in a critical mass of them. I don't know if you agree that that would be something that they would do, because right now they're trying to put more money into it. 
Right. They're trying to increase the lure to get you over there, though. It's interesting. I mean, I, I think you're right. It is welfare. When I hear folks talk to me about this, some of them kind of say it's the opposite almost. They say, well, now that we finally got our universal vouchers, now we're going to raise it up to $10,000 per kid instead of $7,000. So, you know, thanks for finally letting us get this Arizona legislature. Now we'll fund $10,000 per kid, which feels a lot like a hostage situation to me. Like, oh, we were never going to fund our public schools, our charter school kids until you let us have this entitlement program. Now that we got it, we'll lift everybody else up, which, you know, with their like saying that quiet part out loud, but you're right. I mean, follow it through to its logical conclusion. I'm actually a lot more worried that we're going to have really a three-tiered system in Arizona. We're going to have white suburban families accessing high-end private schools in high-end private communities. We're going to have public schools for low-income students, children of color, and we're going to have homeschool for the suburbs that's teaching, I don't know, Nazi ideology, crazy indoctrination, <laughs> evangelical stuff. I mean, I don't know if you saw like the recent, what is it, Shiny Happy People, but that curriculum is actually that they taught. It's the Duger family and they're like fully indoctrinated and scary. And they're using a curriculum that's widely popular and it's one of the most used vendors in the state of Arizona. Oh, wow. So like the literal Duger family, like the groomer family. Yeah, they're on a Netflix special. I did not know about that curriculum. That is deeply scary because, you know, they are nationally, they're claiming that teachers and teachers unions are groomers. And, you know, there's a curriculum out there that you're telling me right now that is literally coming from a groomer family, a family that had some grooming situations going on. How ironic. They always telegraph what's going to be happening on their side by accusing us of it first. It's it's a playbook. I mean, it's obvious once you're in it, you know? Well, let me ask you tough questions. So I do care about the kids that I feel are in the left behind schools. You've taught in those schools. Are you at all sympathetic to why those parents would want any ticket that looks like it's going to lead to a cleaner, safer, healthier, more well-appointed school than they have right now? Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I'm, I'm a parent. I'm sympathetic to any parent that's just trying to do what's best for their kids every single day, every single minute. That's all we're really trying to do. And I know your kids get one chance at an education and it should not be dictated by your zip code. I mean, that is one of the firmest principles on which Save Our Schools Arizona is founded. And I would never judge another parent for making that choice. But those parents are not guaranteed anything with the voucher. And so, you know, in Arizona, really a lot of the quote unquote failing schools, it was only 2% of our schools, by the way, which is touted as this all government schools are failing schools and Arizona is failing and blah, 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 blah. It's not really the case here, but you know, it's tied directly to socioeconomic status. We know that a lot of the schools are on the reservation um, a lot of the schools are in South Phoenix and we need to fix it. And that's why we've fought really hard for an opportunity wait, which Governor Ducey refused to put in place for years and years and years. And we finally got in last year's budget, which would direct more dollars to lower income schools, to schools that were not getting the great letter rates. And then Governor Hobbs just came in and she reversed results-based funding. So the high income schools that were getting A's and B's on their state letter grades are now no longer getting that outsized, you know, income. It's complicated here, but I firmly believe that those schools need a lot more resources. And that's why we fought so hard for those policies, because they matter. I don't know that anybody is really benefiting from a voucher in those areas. And 
to be perfectly honest, and I don't talk about this a lot, but we work with lawmakers to try and have some sort of bargain to say, can you just means test this thing? Like we can tell the train has left the station. This is happening. You are going to force this through. Can we at least give it a means test so that low income families will benefit and not the wealthy? And I was in rooms with lawmakers who laughed in our faces and said, our constituents are the rich ones. Our constituents are already in private school. They're the ones we're doing this for. Basically, you know, go blow. So that's how they sold it because it sounds good to the public, but that's not actually who any of these lawmakers are fighting for in Arizona. And I wish that weren't true. And they're open about it. Behind closed doors. Yeah, behind closed doors, they're open about that's their real constituency. Yeah. That actually, you know, I have to say is what, has kind of changed my attitude a lot about these programs is that I would say up until maybe a year or two ago, the sales pitch, the marketing for school choice was kids of color, marginalized kids of color in really desperate circumstances in areas where the schools really looked like, you know, something that I wouldn't want to leave my kid in, right? My oldest is 32 years old. My youngest is 12. I've been in this rodeo for a while, Right. And I've got three kids in traditional public schools right now. I've seen them from a lot of different angles. Definitely, as I have done better in life uh, with the public schools, they got better too. Right. Like, so some of the schools I was trying to avoid with my first child, actually, I have lots of sympathy for the parents that were where I was. Right. So that was the marketing for school choice. That was my lure. That was my hook of like, hey, shouldn't parents like you get a ticket out of this? Like, you know, look at those other parents. And, you know, Beth, to be honest, like there would be things like our football team, for instance, in Minneapolis, North High, actually playing a suburban school team. Those football players from the city would go see what those other kids were getting. And it was very kind of obvious to them that the world wasn't fair. It would come back and they would just be like, they have like state of the art football facilities. The cost in our district for lunch was $1.75 or so per kid. The lunch in that other district was $12 per kid. They had sushi. They had salads. <laughs> we had Tyson McNuggets. You know, we had Tyson McNuggets. <laughs> you know, so your kids kind of like, they know that they're in the kind of unshiny circumstances. So I have a lot of sympathy about that. But that, that the movement changed. That is no longer, I think, the marketing material now. I think the marketing material is more what you're saying right now. They dropped all of the sympathetic communities like a hot potato. I mean, think about it in Arizona. They started in 2011 with the first ESA for special needs families. Then they went to kids leaving DNF-rated schools, kids on Navajo lands, uh, military families, kids in foster care. When they decided to expand this universally, we said all those kids who really need it and have generally benefited from the program are going to get deprioritized. And they you know, lied through their teeth and said that there was no way. And now guess who's furious and guess who hates the universal vouchers? It's the special needs families and the other families who have now been deprioritized. Nobody cares about them. Nobody's trying to make their access to the program equivalent to what it used to be. Now the wait times for reimbursements are through the roof because these entitled parents are me, 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 while the special needs families who were really, like they were cobbling together therapies and all sorts of creative ways to meet their students' needs are not getting what they need. They're floating things on credit cards for four or five months. And, you know, we do see schools popping up, like I said, in low-income areas, but most of them are like subpar strimmel schools. They're handing out a Chromebook and a plaid skirt and saying, yeah, we're accredited, we're credentialed, we're two years ahead. They're not. There's no accreditation. There's no fingerprint checks. There's no like, there's no teacher certifications. There's not even a really 
like clear curriculum. Like you go and you, you call them and they say, yeah, we put the kids on Khan Academy. Khan Academy is fine for supplemental, but I, I've been teaching math for 12 years. I love teaching math. Khan Academy is not any sort of substitute for actual math instruction with peers and with a great instructor and with small groups. And then you use Khan Academy as like the icing on the cake to give kids a little bit of acceleration or remediation. I think that's hilarious in one way because a lot of the the marketing right now is saying, well, you know, parents during the pandemic, they got to see what schools were doing and it was so terrible that they want a choice now. And then when I hear things like that, you know, people are starting to talk about robot schools and Khan Academy. Listen, when I had my three kids at home for that long ass time that we had our kids at home, Khan Academy was one of the things that we had to use as parents to kind of help where we could or whatever. And that was not what you just said is absolutely true. <laughs> that does not replace a teacher, especially in math, did not replace a teacher. And reading. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you we know and we're, there's a lot of national debates right now about how to teach reading. And I think it's a lot more complicated than most folks even give in that that discussion. I don't think it's as robust as it should be. We know that there's a problem. We know we can be doing better. I wish that people wouldn't politicize that and really, really talk about the actual science of reading. I don't think maybe either side is getting it right, to be perfectly honest. But I certainly don't think that throwing kids on, you know, ABC Mouse for an hour a day and calling it reading is going to get us where we need to go. And that's what's happening with these online programs that are getting vouchers and with these schools that are popping up everywhere. I, I kind of want to go back because you were talking about, you know, the experience of your, your kids and kids who are seeing the other side of things. And you know, I think in Arizona, we, we've gotten to a point where our schools are so dramatically underfunded that really nobody is at that sushi level. Like nobody is getting that except for a few elite private schools. We're all getting Tyson nuggets, to be perfectly honest. But like I went to rural high school in Arizona and I got really lucky. I got a scholarship to go to Notre Dame and that was life changing for me. But I remember going from, you know, my quote unquote AP classes in rural Kingman, Arizona, and trying to transfer those credits and going to those classes with kids who had been at elite schools all around the country. And I was so unprepared. I was so unprepared. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's still happening in Arizona because we didn't have any resources even back then. And that was 20 years ago. We didn't have what we needed and it hasn't changed. We have a whole generation of kids that you know, I feel like not only were voucher families used to push this through, but AFC and the voucher pushers have been here for 25 years in Arizona defunding our schools. And so I really, I think at the end of the day, I'm furious because I feel like no kids getting what they need in this state, none of them. So the whole system across the board is you don't have the like feast or famine that a lot of states have. We really don't. We have these really kind of wealthy public schools that have all these, you know, like a, a theater and multiple sports teams. The state is funding us all at, you know, a Hunger Games model where everybody's fighting for scraps. Nobody's getting what they need. You know, even these voucher families, you know, everybody's starved yeah. and teachers leaving and they've they've basically brought us to the brink right where they want us and i mean you alluded to it they want everybody on a voucher and i don't think that that is universal choice i think diluting all of the choices to prop up some false illusion of choice is the problem all right so beth you are a person who is out front on this issue your organization is out front on this issue 
you have to come into contact with a lot of people that disagree with you who are on the other side of this or whatnot. So you've probably heard every kind of like angle on this. So I'm going to throw some of my angles at you and see what you say. Okay. So the first one is the money that is allocated for students is not actually the school's money. That's the student's money and the money should follow the child wherever they go. So we should fund students, not systems. What do you say to that? I mean, it sounds good, right? It sounds really good on paper. <laughs> yeah, Crystal Pepsi sounded really good too. Uh, <laughs> and you know, in a, in a way, like there are elements of truth there, right? Like any any good argument. But the problem is, it falls apart when eighty percent of the kids didn't have any money allocated to them, right? They were already in a private school or a homeschool situation, so there was no money in the budget for those kids. So now when parents are taking those dollars and the legislature refuses to budget for more dollars, they're taking that from the local public school. It's not a plug and play model. There's also the much less sexy, long explanation of, you know, economies of scale and pooled resources. But suffice it to say, like if seven kids leave my local elementary school spread out between kindergarten and six, one per grade, it's not going to make a difference for the cafeteria, for the buses, really for any class size, for the number of principals, counselors, custodians needed. But that is $49,000. They're going to have to cut a teacher. Now you've got three third grade classrooms. You got to cut a teacher. You got two third grade classrooms with 45 kids each. And these are the things that are going to start happening. And everybody's going to try and be pointing the fingers at the principal, the superintendent, the school boards, when the reality is the legislature has completely messed up our entire funding system because we're now propping up three separate systems and that is the least efficient thing you can do. And I'm not saying that efficiency is more important than education, but if you're trying to provide a robust choice to families and you're smearing taxpayer dollars around like a toddler with peanut butter, you're not going to have any good systems. So I'll get on to my next talking point, but on this one, I would say my response to that would be, I think public school supporters, which I count myself as one, but I count myself as a reformed kind of school choice supporter, I think they err on talking about this like it's a business issue, though. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about kids, where my kids should be able to go, and should they be able to go to a place that has a good football team and a place that doesn't have metal detectors and a place where their, you know, their teachers are really sharp and good and love them. It's hard for me to hear business talk when you've got the emotional talk over here. The emotional talk is really about my child and what my child deserves and child-centeredness and putting the child at the middle of things. And then public school supporters say, yeah, but the money. What will this mean for the system if you take your kid out and put them somewhere else? It's really hard because like, your inclination as a parent is on the emotional side. Right. I think that's fair. I mean, I only would really enter that messaging box based on your question for sure. But I think you're right in general, you know, even reframing that to say, I don't want my kid who's in fifth grade to be in a class of 45 students, Mm -hmm. but that's what's happening because every single school is losing out on frankly a ton of money and money matters to schools because that's how you get services to kids that's how you get resources and extracurriculars and you know great stem products and all of the amazing things that we want to get in front of kids are not happening because we don't have the resources and so i know it's hard to talk about money but the money really doesn't matter and it matters at the end we have to tie the money though to things that parents want instead of talking just about the, the money and the mechanics of how it works 
So another talking point, schools right now, public schools are not values neutral. And what if they're not like, you know, like what's being taught in the public schools doesn't align with my values? Should the government force me to have my kid in a school where they're teaching them things that are not values aligned with what I want? Why shouldn't I be able to decide to put them somewhere else? So a lot of the, you know, boogeymen that have been thrown out there about SEL and CRT, we know that's not even being taught. I think a lot of these parents that are saying that don't have any concrete evidence. And you might have a teacher who says, yeah, you know, I love Bernie Sanders and you might see that on their phone, but you might also have a teacher that says, I love Jesus and has a cross on their wall. And <laughs> that's okay. Like we are yeah. Americans. We can deal with that. A second grader or an eighth grader can deal with seeing a cross on the wall or Bernie Sanders on their teacher's phone. However, that teacher is not sitting there proselytizing the religion of Mr. Sanders or, you know, the religion of Christianity in class. That's not happening. And if it does happen, it is very, very rare. It shouldn't be happening. I don't think that taxpayer dollars should be parsed out based on those sorts of values. I think I probably agree with those parents, but at the same time, I also know it's not happening. Teachers barely have enough time to cover math, reading, and writing. And yes, there is social emotional learning. Absolutely. And yes, I want my fifth grader to be taught how to not be a bully. And I want my sixth grader to learn how to make friends. Like, yes, I want my kids learning SEL. It is not the boogeyman. It is not about grooming and bestiality and pedophilia, which the right will have you believe right now. Yeah. And this is, I feel like that's a really good answer. I feel like actually that's the type of answer. I wish more teachers were out front. I wish more teachers were getting the mic, the microphone, and saying, you know, because like public education is not just about educating children, it's about educating the public, right? So I think like if teachers thought that way, no, no, we have a very ignorant public. They do not know what goes on in classrooms. So you can tell them anything and they might believe it because it's such a mystery to them. So without teachers, and teachers are the most trusted communicators in education, every kind of research bit of research tells you that the public trusts teachers directly more than they trust anybody else in terms of communicating about education, which is why I wish there were more teachers saying what you just said out front, educating people. You're going to hear lots of stories about what's going on in classrooms. Uh, kitty litter. You know, did you know that, you know, they're putting kitty litter in the classes because some of the students uh, want to be furries and somebody somewhere really believes that. <laughs> Like, like, like literally believes that's what's happening. Based on my internet trolls, I, and probably yours, I think a lot of people actually believe that. They do. Which they do. is wild to me. And, and they're, those people are being manipulated. And I think it's sad. They really do. I mean, I think our teachers do a tremendous job every day. And in Arizona, they're given very little and they do so much. All right. I'm going to throw another one of my talking points out at you. So this is one of mine. This isn't one of, you know, all choice people. But so I've been asked before, you know, well, if we get vouchers the way that you want them, it's some people are just going to like put their kids in like clan academies. They're going to put their kids in like, you know, white supremacist little academies and schools. Now, my answer to that <laughs> is, wouldn't it kind of be like a service to public school students, my kids included, if we can get them all to go somewhere else and be somewhere else on their own? <laughs> like, wouldn't that kind of, I mean, yes, you're going to lose the seven, eight, nine, ten thousand per one. But at the end of the day, you might be making my school safer for my kid. What do you think about that? I hear you. I've had, I've had some people say some similar things to me here because that actually is happening. Like those Nazi homeschool rings are like literally happening here. But I go back to the kids and 
you know, when you are a child and you're being homeschooled and indoctrinated and you're not around anybody else, you don't have a way out. If you are at the local high school and you're hearing a diverse set of ideas and you're friends with somebody who believes differently, you have a lifeline. And I'm not saying it will always work that way. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I hear you. I think there are situations where those influences are toxic and, and really hard for kids like ours to be around, right? Because they've been told, they've been taught love and acceptance and inclusivity their whole lives. But what does that do for our society? If we create, you know, it's okay to send our taxpayer dollars to a private school that hates gay people. It's okay to create all, a micro school for LDS students. It's okay to have a micro school for this kind of student and people who believe in Adolf Hitler's philosophies and blah, blah, blah. And then we all come back together when they're 18 and try and enter the workforce. And then we try and vote and have a democracy or we have a civil war. I mean, public education to me really is a unifier in a lot of ways. And it's not always pretty, right? It's, it's kind of like Twitter. It's not always great, but you can change minds in a public school and you can move forward towards a better democracy. So I want to believe in what you just said, because like directionally, I think it's correct. And it's what I believe. I want us to have a fully functioning multiracial democracy where no one is left out and where it's not okay to marginalize or scapegoat anyone because of their background and who they are or whatnot. I think as a country, we'd be a very mature country if we could get to that point. Like Because we have so many different kinds of people with different kinds of background, speak so many different languages. I mean, we're not Japan. You know, We're not like one of these countries, you know, Finland. We're not these countries that can do the monoracial thing, right? So we have so many different kinds of people that one of our kind of inventions should be a system that is capable of negotiating difference for all those different people. Like that's something we should produce, right. but it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked though, Beth. No, it hasn't. And I, I will be the first to agree with you there. And like I said, at the beginning of our conversation, we have to do better. The problem is I think we're going in the wrong direction with all of these like silencing bills, book bans, anti-CRT. I mean, I think the whole point is to get kids together and let them talk and facilitate really hard conversations. And the teacher really shouldn't be talking about their opinion at all. Like if you're doing it well, you're having Socratic discussions where the kids are really grappling with tough concepts. And right now teachers are walking away from that because even if they don't say anything, it was talked about in their classroom and they feel like they could be, they could have their certification revoked. They feel like they could be blasted on the internet by Ron DeSantis. Like, mm -hmm. it's not an okay climate to be doing these hard things that you and I are talking about. Do you support the idea that there should be religious exceptions for people that have very serious kind of conflicts with what goes on in public schools? Like, for instance, a more sympathetic case or a less sympathetic case. One of the sympathetic cases could be the kids that get bullied so much in school that there's there they have high degree of suicidal ideation and keeping them in the situation that they're in right now actually is dangerous like so there need to be safe haven places for them to go elsewhere right and you know the other side of that are the parents that don't want gender queer the book in their school at all they don't even want it's not it that they don't want their kids reading it they don't want anybody reading it right like any of your kids so 
would there, you know, in your world, see things for some families being in escape valves, a, a, a publicly funded way for them to go and be successful somewhere else? It's not about religion, though. I mean, I, I really I, I take issue with the specific example of folks who are rejecting books on the basis of religion. Like, I don't think Jesus said, like, don't let that book be in the library. Like, that is not <laughs> religion. It's moms for liberty being moms for liberty. You know, I mean, I've had students, for example, who were uh, Muslim who didn't participate in band and orchestra because it was considered, you know, inappropriate and their parents didn't want them to. So we made an accommodation like things like that. That's what public schools do. I've had horrible situations where um, it wasn't because of bullying. It was because of an illness. But I had a student who had to be placed in a private placement for suicidal ideation. Um, and she was a fifth grader. And we worked with at the district and the district actually paid for that private placement. So there are a lot of mechanisms. I don't know about the rest of the country, but certainly in Arizona, where there's like a pseudo voucher program that's public to private, where those accommodations are possible. And I think when done well, that's what public schools do. Like you make it so that every family can have their values honored. And what that means is like Johnny might not be allowed to read gender queer because I honor his mom's wishes, but, but Susie right next door absolutely can. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I think in most parts of the country, people don't understand the many services that public schools offer. So when I hear people talk generally about public schools, I always remind them there are 14,000 to 15,000 school districts with something like 100,000 schools. And I can guarantee you that there's a million kind of things going on that you don't think about when you think about public schools. There are alternative schools, contract alternatives that districts you know, put special needs kids in sometimes, schools for kids that are two years behind and can't get enough credits to graduate you know, medically fragile children have like a different situation that the state pays for, the district will pay for. But the one that you can't get around right now that is really hard because I think it's going to become an issue for next year for the 2024 race is this one around kind of religious standards that people have. So even so having a queer teacher, having a book that has queer lifestyle in the book is not for them. It's not something they can get around. It's like not something that is that they can get over. As much as I would want to say to them, you don't always get what you want, <laughs> right? Like you have a right, if you don't want your kid reading that, the school will honor that, but you don't have a right to tell me that my kid can't honor that. Yeah, I'm going to be a hardliner on this and say, like, if that's your religion, which you are entitled to, then you need to pay for another alternative. If you really are at a point where your religion tells you that your, your child cannot be in a class taught by somebody who's gay, then you need to provide an alternative. You need to come up with your own or change schools or ask to change teachers. I mean, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I cannot even imagine following a religion that would lead me to that place. Going back to one of your earlier points then. So you say that person really needs to provide an alternative for their own child. And they would say, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about me taking my tax money for my kid to go put them in that other situation. That would be their response to what you just said, which is, yes, I agree. I should put my kid in another place. And I think I'm in between the two of you now. Like, I think like I'm in the middle because I'm saying for some of y'all, it might be okay for you to go somewhere else, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, yeah, some of them I'm kind of like... 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like we need everybody. I feel like I feel like we can let some of them go. I hear you, but what if that kid was gonna be okay? And it happens a lot. Like I, I can't tell you how many times you meet the parent and you're like, the apple doesn't always fall right next to the tree. Like sometimes it is very far. I had a oh my gosh, I shouldn't even say this. But I had a student few years ago whose grandmother was constantly at school and I happened to see her shouting at the legislature about election denial stuff and January 6th stuff and just screaming at our lawmakers and saying that the fake elector should die. Mm. Her child who she lived with was a peach. He was a great kid and she actually was trying to get him diagnosed as autistic to get him on an ESA before Universal and it didn't go anywhere because he was doing just great and not autistic. And interestingly, he's still in the public school, even post-universal, because I think even she realized it's actually a really great place for him and he's thriving. So I don't know. I think I'm not saying that we should all have to suffer, but I think that kids always deserve a leg up. And, you know, Arizona voters spoke. They don't want to fund religious schools. They don't. And I know that ESA is a workaround. I understand that it's a little bit different than directly funding a religious school, but that's not how Arizona voters roll. And I know that can vary from state to state, but I feel like our country is pretty much based on separation of church and state and people don't like it. Yeah, I think I'm going to keep working on you over time. And I'm going to get you to see that we could let some of them (laughs) go be peaceful somewhere else. Now we don't need all of them. Just give them something, somewhere to be where they uh, they run run and control everything because that's what they want. So, so kind of a final question, what do you think it would take to get the public fully educated about these issues and on board towards a common cause for education? I think right now we're, we're when I say we, you know, public education advocates, teachers, parents, like normal parents, not Moms for Liberty parents are just up against massive amounts of money and lives. And, you know, honestly, if I'm going to give you a dead honest answer, we'd probably have to overturn Citizens United before anybody's going to get the truth, like before real information is going to get out there. Because right now, I mean, our country is run by these special interests who are dumping the money in vouchers or dumping the money in elections. They're organizing with lies. They're spreading misinformation on purpose. And, it is really hard to cut through that. You know, we do a lot of grassroots organizing, relational organizing. I'm actually leaving in an hour to go up to the Navajo Nation. It's a five hour drive. We're organizing there all weekend. Like we are in the communities. We are listening, we're educating. And I think that's the only antidote, right? You have to go meet people face to face. You have to listen, you have to collaborate. So I don't know, I mean, your, your question was around like sort of a national reckoning. I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, I think we're in the messy space right now. And I honestly think that this program is so poorly designed and will have such poor outcomes that within eight to 10 years, my prediction is that it will probably implode on itself and people will see the light. But unfortunately for me, a lot of kids are going to lose out in the process. That's my big fear. My big fear is that if you were a scientific predicting person and you looked at this and said, based on all that we know, all the research that we've had from the past, what happens if you give people just a blank check and some money and tell them, go have at it with kids, no standards, no goals, no idea about how you monitor or track progress, student progress, no focus on student achievement, really, really kind of like a focus on just a whole bunch of other kinds of things. And then you, you put all that in the table and you say, now, what do you think is going to happen? Let's, let's, 
let's war game this out. Let's let's put it in an algorithm and have the algorithm tell us what's going to happen. I think the most logical thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of kids that actually don't make forward progress in education. And you're going to have larger numbers of them. Like you think it's bad in public schools because, you know, we don't have all the kids where they need to be in terms of proficiency. At least public schools are focusing on that every day, right? You start putting money into school systems where they're not even focusing on it. It's not even, I mean, I I joke about it all the time. I mean, some of these schools are schools where, you know, they're teaching the kids that Jesus rode a dinosaur, right? Like, you know, I don't know what the future is going to hold for you if you really believe that. I know, but then your 12-year-old and my 12-year-old are going to have to interact with them in college or in the workforce. I mean, is there going to be a whole thing like, oh, those are the voucher kids? I don't know. And again, it's going to be different outcomes for different types of kids. And you and I both know the suburban, white, rich kids are going to be just fine. They always are. Yeah, they're going to get the premium education because they get the best of everything. Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming on today. You know, for people listening, Beth and I had like some kind of like epic kind of Twitter back and forth, you know, uh, over time. And I don't ever think that that means that you can't talk. Like you can't have like a normal, like civilized conversation about these things. In this particular show, I actually, you know, I have some opinions that are all over the place, but this was really more about getting from you kind of like your truthful opinion about these things and to know more about Arizona specifically because it's being held up as kind of like a national example. And I think I agree with you that it shouldn't be held up as the national example, even though I wrote glowing things about it (laughs) just a couple of years ago. I wouldn't subscribe to that now. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope maybe we can continue the conversation and talk about what is a better solution. You and I clearly agree solutions are needed. This might not be the one. So what is the one? I appreciate that. And if you guys want to find Beth, you can find their website. If you go to sosarizona.org, so saveourschoolsarizona.org, you'll be able to find Beth if you want to follow up with her and get any you know more information. Go ahead and go to the website, find that out. And when it comes to feedback for us for the show, every week I tell you guys that we really want to hear from you and we love getting your email and your voicemail. And it challenges us sometimes. And I just want to make sure that we highlight the good and the ones that are giving us some constructive feedback. And this week we have an email from Andrew, and he had two main things that he was taking issue with with our show. The one was around negative experiences with unions and how we have portrayed unions on our show. I think he you know, felt as though we weren't seeing the full kind of benefits of teachers' unions, and I think he's pushing us to do better on that. We did have a little bit of back and forth, and you know, I think the show is what it is. We have our opinions and we have our thoughts and we have different life experience with different organizations. But of course, I see the value in teachers' unions. The second point that he had was the history uh, around charter schools. We've been too positive, he thinks, about charter schools and charter school legislation. You know, he says that he is undeniably privileged, but he still has some research. He's a doctoral student around how these schools work for communities. Ravi actually led a chain of very successful charter schools in Nashville. And I've been a charter school supporter for many years, have been uh, mentored by the people that enacted the very first charter school laws. And I was once a charter school parent on purpose because we needed the school because of family situations. So we all come from different perspectives and that's fine. Andrew, thank you so much for emailing us, taking the time to respond to our shows. We hope you keep listening. And the rest of you, please keep the feedback coming. There's two ways you can do that. So the way to call us and leave us a voicemail is 
321-213-9171. Again, that's 321-213-9171. Or you can just send an email to citizenstewartshow at thebranchmedia.org. On that last part, I would invite you to go check out thebranchmedia.org so you can see the other shows that are on this network. We have a large variety of voices that span the political kind of ecosystem. So go check those out too. And as always, thank you for listening to the show. We will catch you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. 